0: Well, it is an absolute delight to be here with you this morning. I may have talked with some of you on the phone. It's possible because I took part in the phone. It's a delight to be here with you at Summit Bible Church. I pray for you every day. You are on my heart, and your pastor, whom I love, is a dear friend of mine. I just am thrilled for the opportunity to stand behind his pulpit and open the Word of God with you this morning, and and to just really enjoy. Rejoice in what God has done through the Lord Jesus Christ. So open your Bibles up, if you would, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, page 869. I'm going to attempt to preach out of your pew Bible this morning. The only reason I say I'm going to attempt is because the print is very small. And my eyes are getting older by the year. But I think we'll be all right with this you know, December is just a crazy busy month, isn't it? It seems like there are more obligations that come our way in the month of December than in any other month of the year. In fact, just listening to the announcement to say that that the youth were not going to be meeting for the rest of the year, I thought, oh, wow, for the rest of the year? And I realized, oh, yeah, it's December. It's really only just a couple of weeks. But December just has a way of doing that, doesn't it? it? It kind of squeezes down on us and you know, all of those people that you've said, you know, we really need to get together with so-and-so. We need to go out and have dinner with them or have them over into our home or whatever and, and the months click by and, you know, we really need to get together with so-and-so and, and then all of a sudden you're in December and you go, wow, we we've got to get this done and the window is getting smaller and smaller and so it just gets kind of frantic in December. There are all kinds of family commitments and there are church activities and there are things at work and there are family pressures and financial obligations and just everything seems to squeeze down into the month of December. You know, you throw in a little sickness, maybe a cold or something, and you know, it's crazy. It's a wonder we get through this month at all. And some people, sad to say, some people they get so pressed at Christmas time in the month of December, they get so pressed that their their spiritual life kind of goes on hold goes on autopilot for the month of December. just so many things that are that are clamoring for their time and their attention and their energy, and something has to give and, and so what happens sometimes it's kind of subtle, but, but what begins to happen is just your time with the Lord. it begins to to kind of wane and, and go by the wayside and, and go on to autopilot and you know maybe maybe you say to yourself, well. You know, I'll, I'll get back with it first of the year. You know, New Year's resolution. I'm going to read my Bible every day. And I'll just wait until January. And, and I'll, you know, December is just lost. I'll, I'll try again in January. And, oh, my friends, these things, they should not be. They should not be. In the, in the press of life, and it's busy. There's no question about it. But in the press of life, we have to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's, that's my message for you this morning. Keeping the main thing the main thing. That is loving Christ and being loved by Him. That's the main thing in life. That's the only thing that endures into eternity. Loving Jesus and and being loved by Him. As we listen intently to His Word, the Holy Scriptures. So what do I have for you this morning? Well, here in in Luke's account, did I tell you to open to Luke 10? Did I tell you that? Good. Luke chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 38 through 42 this morning. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. And it's just a little, a little account here, just a, a little, little story, a little snippet of a story. And as we look together at this account, we're reminded about keeping the main thing the main thing. Keeping the main thing the main thing. Now, we need a little background because we're, we're jumping right here into the midst of Luke's Gospel. So, how about a little background to get us up and running here before we come to the verses that we want to spend some time with. Well, the events in Luke chapter 10, they occur during the final six months of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The last six months before He goes to the cross to be crucified. And so, during this final six-month period of time, Jesus is conducting his ministry primarily outside of the city of Jerusalem, around the countryside of Judea, and then further into the east across the Jordan River in a place called Perea. So John's gospel actually gives us the most information about his wanderings during this six-month period of time. But during the six months, Jesus makes Three trips back to the city of Jerusalem. Two actually into the city and one very close to the city. And John's Gospel narrates those three trips for us. But the events here of chapter 10, and in particular verses 38 and, and following, they occur during the six-month period of time, and they occur after what's called the Feast of Booths. B-O-O-T-H-S. Feast of Booths are also called the Feast of tabernacles this was one of the three annual feasts of the nation of israel when all males all able-bodied males age 20 and above were required to come back to the temple to celebrate this great national religious feast and festival and so they would come back and it was called the feast of tabernacles or the feast of booze because they would live for a week in a, in a roughly constructed booth or tabernacle or tent made out of palm branches and a few sticks to kind of support the thing, and so they would live during that time. The events here in John, or excuse me, in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 and following, occur after that event of the feast of Booze. Now, by this time, the, the Jewish authorities are hostile to Christ. It has been a growing hostility. And I'm sure Jeremy has begun. He's preaching Matthew's Gospel to you. And so I'm sure he's been talking to you about this. But there is an increasing level of animosity that's going on among the leadership, the authorities of the nation of Israel and this prophet from Galilee who seems intent upon disrupting their lives and all that they hold precious by his message that he himself is Messiah god's own anointed one and so this hostility has been growing it's been intensifying it's arrived at a peak of frenzy now whereby they will kill him once they have opportunity if they could get away with it if they could have if they could avoid the ensuing mob action that might occur they will kill him and it'll within that six month period of time of course they will So that's what's going on during this time. So Jesus, He's smart. He's staying out of Jerusalem. He's only coming into the city at the times of the required feasts, and He does it in, in a multitude, in a crowd of people, because there's safety in numbers. You see in the beginning of John chapter 10, that Jesus is salting His message... Verse 1, chapter 10, it says, After this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And so he sent out these 72 heralds, people to go out and proclaim his message in advance of the various communities of the countryside of Judea that he was coming to. This is his last trip, his last trip around the land telling the people, I am the one. I am the one. And so he sends them out, and and Luke narrates that for us. And they come back, and they're very excited about the ministry that they've had. And, And verse 23, John chapter 10, turning to his disciples, he said privately. Now here he turns away from the 72, but turning to the 12, he says privately to them. Verse 23, blessed are the eyes that see what you have seen. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What he's saying is that the prophets from of old, for more than a thousand years, they had desired to see the time of the coming king of Israel, the anointed one, the Messiah, the greater son of David, as we read earlier. They've been looking forward to this time and they never saw, they never lived that long. But you have seen it, he says. Blessed are you whose eyes have seen this great event. A little bit later after that in chapter 10, he encounters a lawyer, verse 25. This lawyer or this expert in the Jewish law challenges him. You see it in verse 25. stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, that is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan that illustrates the answer to the question, Who is my neighbor? Immediately following that, we arrive in verse 38, which is the text before us this morning. And we hear, through Dr. Luke, the story here of Martha and Mary. And the reason that Luke relates this story for us here in this text is because it illustrates, it illustrates what it means, verse 27, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. What does it look like to love God with the totality of my being? A person who really loves God with the totality of who they are, heart, soul, mind and strength. What characterizes their life? What do they look like? Luke will answer that for us here, beginning in verse 38. It is a means to illustrate this great truth of loving God. So as we're going to look here, verse 38 and following, I've given you just three little words. They're in your bulletin. A little outline of the section here. Three words, three thoughts. Something to hang your hat on as we go through this section together. And they're very simple. They are contrast, complaint, and correction. So there's a contrast followed by a complaint, which leads to a correction. Leads to a correction. Let's look first at the contrast beginning in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Stop right there. We're introduced here to this woman, Martha, and a verse or so later we will be introduced to her sister, Mary. The picture that Luke gives us here is that Jesus and his 12 disciples, they're traveling around the countryside together. They're traveling around the countryside, and they come to this village, a certain village, small village. And there in that village is this woman named Martha, and she has a sister by the name of Mary. Now, if we were to compare John chapter 11 and verse 1, we would find there the village referred to again. And there it's given a name, and it's called Bethany. It's the village of Bethany, John chapter 11, verse 1. You can check it on your own. It's called the village of Bethany. It's located about two miles east of the city of Jerusalem on the backside of the Mount of Olives as one heads down into the Jordan River Valley. So it's just two miles outside the city, small little village called Bethany. Now Jesus is what's called an itinerant teacher. That is, He moves from place to place. He goes here, He spends a little time teaching the Word of God, And then he moved somewhere else. And for three and a half years, that's pretty much what his life was. He moved around teaching and preaching the Word of God and declaring, as the Gospels tell us, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And so because he was an itinerant preacher, he was reliant upon others to care for him. In fact, we see over in chapter 9 and in verse 58, chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel, verse 58, the character of Jesus' is itinerant ministry. In fact, we'll just pick it up in 57. It says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus answered him, verse 58, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying even a bird has a nest to go home to, but the Son of Man has no place to go. He has no place to call home. He has no place, even a fox has a hole to crawl into at night. The Son of Man has no place. He is entirely dependent upon the hospitality and the generosity of the people for whom he is preaching the Word of God. He is fully dependent upon them. They must provide for his physical needs, they must feed him, they must provide housing for him. Many a night, I'm sure, he slept in the the great outdoors, as it were, because there was no home open to him. So he's living that life of faith right on the edge. He needs a place to rest. And so he enters the village here of Bethany, and it says a woman by the name of Martha, verse 38, welcomed him into her home. She welcomed him into her home. Now the idea here of welcoming him in is that she will provide for him at a minimum a meal to eat. She will provide for him. She will feed him. Likely also that he would be able to spend the night there. He and, by the way, his 12 disciples, I'm pretty sure, with him. Back to verse 23, it talks about the 12. And so I'm sure it was more than just him. It would be his 12 closest disciples who were following along with him. So you have to get the picture here. It's not just she has this one guy over for dinner, right? She's having a whole crowd come in for dinner. Martha. And notice it also. It says she welcomes him into her home. Verse 38. You see it? Into her house. So we're pretty sure from that she's the older of the two sisters. So the older sister, the one who probably owns the home, she throws it wide open and she says, Come on in. You and all of your traveling companions, come on in for dinner. Come in for dinner. Now, By inviting him in for dinner, she and her sister, sister Mary. By the time I'm done preaching, you'll probably figure out from what part of the country I originally hail from. New England. Sorry, it's just that way. So she invites her sister. There is an R on the end of that word. She invites, her sister rather, and Martha invite him into their home. To care for Him. And they invite Him in because they want to hear His message. This this man has said some really amazing things. He has said, unless you eat My flesh and drink My blood, you have no part in Me. You will have no eternal life. He has said that I am the one who has been sent from God. That you might have life and you might have it abundantly. He has declared himself equal with God in defiance of the Jewish authorities and at the risk of his own life. He's made some outrageous claims. He's gone into the temple and he's driven them out. The money changers and and all of the people selling the sacrificial animals. He's driven them out and he's saying, you're making my father's house into a house of merchandise. Thus claiming himself to be God. So he's made some incredible claims. And he's backed them up. He's been doing miracles all over the place. Not just simple miracles. You know, like somebody's back is bothering them a little bit. And, and, you know, they go and now their back feels okay. Or, Or lengthening a short leg or some other hoax. He's been doing like honest to goodness, top drawer, blue ribbon, real miracles. Like raising people from the dead. Like restoring the sight to the blind. Like giving speech to the dumb. Like opening the ears of the deaf. Like the kingdom of God has invaded humanity. And so they want to hear from this man. They want to hear the things that the kings and the prophets had longed to hear and had not heard. And so they invite him into their home. They invite him into their home. But having invited him in, the king of Israel, into their home, somebody has to make dinner for him. Somebody has to cook. He is an honored guest. He is the very king of Israel. The greater son of David. The lion of the tribe of Judah. God himself. In my living room. Staying at my house. For dinner. Honey, what are we going to serve him? Call Domino's. Oh, wait a minute. phone hasn't been invented yet. Nor has Domino's been invented yet. Cooking. Preparing. This is no small task. And we have all these conveniences, right? My wife the other day said, Honey, what do you think about getting a bread maker? I said, what do we need a bread maker for? We can go to the store and buy bread. <laughs> well, I was just thinking about a bread Well, you know, bread maker. Guess how bread is like made in the rest of the world? With one's own two hands, <laughs> the dough is kneaded. I mean, we have all of these luxuries, all of these time-saving devices, everything to make our life easy, and yet we're crazy busy anyway. So they invite the king of Israel into their home for dinner. You can just get an idea ladies. Work with me on this, right? I mean you can you can begin to sense what's going on here. Verse 39. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. All right, here's the picture. The living room. There's Mary, the younger sister of Martha's her home but they live together evidently she cozies right up at the feet of Jesus she's unconcerned about the domestic duties and problems that are confronting this family don't lose this in your mind this is an honored guest i mean how often does the king of Israel come and dine in someone's home? How about if the president, chief of staff, were to call you up and say, Hey, you know, I'm going to be in Fontana next week. I'd like to stop into your home and have a meal with you together. What do you think? Are you kidding me? <laughs> the president? My home? Look at the place. It needs to be painted. It needs new drapes, you know. We should have to get that picture. King of Israel, coming to dinner. And there's my little sister, sitting in the living room, at His feet. You notice that? Sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to His teaching. Now, sitting at His feet, that's a, that's a clue for us. It speaks of the position of Of a very zealous disciple. Not someone who is only mildly interested in what the teacher has to say. This is this is someone who is riveted by his teaching and his words. She wants to be as close to him as she can be. So she's sitting at his feet. It's used that way, by the way, over in Acts chapter twenty two and verse three. It's Spoken of the great Apostle Paul who says in his earlier years he sat at the feet of the great Rabbi Gamaliel. And it was a way for Paul to say, listen, I was no no kind of wishy-washy kind of disciple. I was an intense disciple who sat right at the feet of the great teacher as close as I could get so I could suck up every word of wisdom that might fall from his lips. This is the position of Mary. It also makes it rather shocking because this position was generally not acceptable in the first century for a woman to occupy. This was a man's place. The men would sit at the feet of the great teachers. Though the women, they would be responsible for domestic duties and they might be able to stand off at a distance and kind of overhear the conversation as they come and go about their responsibilities. But never to sit here, never. So This is a bit shocking. We have Martha. Now, you've got to get the contrast. Right? We've got Martha, the owner of the home. And she's beginning to proverbially tear out her hair, trying to figure out what she's going to serve to the king of Israel. Her younger sister, Mary, by contrast, is snuggled up as close to the feet of Christ as she can get. Beginning of verse 40, we see it. Martha was distracted with much serving. Beginning verse 40. This is the contrast. Martha distracted with much serving. That is, she's being dragged away by the necessities of life. The the Greek here is, is really quite forceful. It says she's being pulled or she's being dragged away. She's become distracted or busy or overburdened. It's all kind of there in the Greek that stands behind the English text. So she is consumed with the Requirements of honoring her guests. There are all kinds of cultural pressures and obligations and expectations. There are the, the very requirements of doing a meal. is not as easy as it is for us. The cooking process was a long process. It was a labor-intensive process. And it appears, as we'll see when we go a little bit further on, as you might expect in preparing for a king, you're going to put out your best stuff. A banquet for the king. So she is distracted, it says here, with this. The implication here is, by the way, that that Martha wants to hear the teaching too. Martha wants to hear as much as Mary wants to hear, or at least on the surface that's true. But she, the, the responsibilities of life, the commitments, the requirements, the expectations of others and upon herself is so great that she's being pulled away. From that, what she wants to do. The pressures of hospitality, if I can say it that way, are distracting her, dragging her away. The contrast. Then we arrive at the complaint. A complaint. Verse 40, second half of the verse. And she went up to him, that is to Jesus. This is Martha now. And she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Wow. Wow. She's having to get dinner on the table. She's having to do it by herself. Now, a a good dinner arrives at the table with all the food hot, right? Isn't that how it's done? But all food doesn't cook at the same time rate. And so it requires one to think, okay, now let's see, I gotta put the I gotta put the roast in the oven at such and such a time, three twenty five, I gotta take this out, I gotta, you know, got the potatoes, and whatever it is. You gotta get this all done, right? And then probably multiple courses. All of this activity. So I here's my mental picture of all of this. She's busy in the kitchen and she can kind of hear you know in the in the other room and then she hears one word, kingdom of god. She, goes, ah. she leaves it. She goes in the ki- you know, She goes in the living room. She wants to hear and shh, 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 shh. you smell anything? Boom, back to the kitchen again, right? Get that pan off the stove. It's boiling over. And so she's back into the living room. She's back into the kitchen. In the meantime, table has to be set. So, out to set the table, right? You gotta have the plate, you gotta have the salad plate, you gotta have the, the bowl, you have to have a, you know five forks and three spoons and proper knives and water glass here and coffee cup here, you know, the whole deal, right? Fancy fancy. Why? King of Israel. It's the king of Israel, there's no shabby affair. It's the king of Israel. So that's the picture in my mind's eye. She's back and forth back and forth between her obligations that are pulling her in this direction and her desire, her desire for Christ that's pulling her this way. She's very, very normal, very human, very human. What happens when you are torn between two things that you want to do, two things that that you, in a sense, have to do? The blood pressure starts to rise. That's what happens. It starts to elevate, you know, just a little at first. And then like a, like a pressure cooker on the back of the stove, starts to get hotter and hotter. Pretty soon it starts to sizzle, and then the little thing on the top starts to wiggle, and steam starts to come out. That's her ears, by the way, steam coming out. I mean, she's increasingly, increasingly frustrated. And the frustration turns to anger. Turns to anger until, and get the picture here, right? Until she marches into the room, stands right in front of Jesus, the very King of Israel, Messiah, and she chews Him out. Awkward. You know what I'm saying? Kind of awkward. He's your guest. He's the honored King of Israel. He's sitting in your living room. And you marched right in. And that's that's what it indicates she went right up to him. Do you see it? End of verse 40. She went right up to him and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Tell her then to help me. Tell her to help me. I mean, it's obvious that Mary's not going to get it on her own. She's always leaving me like that. You know what I'm saying? You know, you're in the kitchen and you think ah! Here it goes again. She's gonna leave me again. I always do everything around here. I have to cook, I have to clean up. Worthless sister of my you know It's obvious Mary's not gonna help. I mean, how many times does she walk back and forth and, and kind of as she goes by you know, sighing, you know, as she's carrying things back and forth to the table rolling her eyes, everything she can think of to, to draw attraction to the need that she has. And Mary, man, she's oblivious. She didn't get any of it. So Mary's not going to help her. That's obvious. And it's equally obvious, by the way, that Jesus doesn't seem to care. He doesn't care. I mean, He could, he could rectify the whole problem. All He has to do, very simple, just say, Mary, why don't you just... Go along for a little bit, help your sister, and then come back. That seems like a reasonable solution, doesn't it? Come on, Mary, just, you know, help her out a little. You set the table for her. He doesn't do that. He appears to be absolutely unconcerned with all of the responsibilities, all of the pressures, all of the requirements, all the things that are pulling at Martha. He seems like he couldn't care less. By the way, this is shocking. I hope, you, I hope you sense a little of this. This is absolutely shocking. I mean, be honest with me. Can't you identify right now with Martha? More than with Mary. I mean, right? Yes? You bet. You bet. I mean, the way we would expect the story to come out, and in fact, the way that if we were there, that we would, we would bring it about, is we would say to Mary, 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 I know you want to hear everything I have to say, but, but you're part owner of this house too, you know. You, you live here too. Give your sister a hand. Just help her out a little bit. And then both of you can come in and sit and listen. Sounds reasonable. Sounds eminently reasonable to me. And then we arrive, verse 41, at the correction. It's like a slap in the face. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. We arrive at the correction. Jesus rebukes. Now, He does it gently. It's a very gentle rebuke. But He is absolutely rebuking or reprimanding Martha. Martha, Martha. Chill out. That's what He's saying. Martha, settle down. Settle down. You're you're allowing yourself to be inwardly anxious and, and outwardly agitated by your excessive preparation for a meal. A meal. Something we're going to eat and enjoy. But without putting too fine a point on it, within a few few hours, right, it's done. It's a temporal thing. It's a temporal thing. It's just a meal. The reference here, by the way, to many and one. It may refer to the size of the meal, the number of courses, the number of dishes. It's possible. Saying Martha, Mar- Mar- Martha, 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 we don't need to have soup and then salad and then the, the main course and then a dessert. It's not necessary. Just one thing. Just just one. Just a, a pot of soup. You know, throw some stuff in it, water, and, you know what I'm saying? Put it on a stove and let it boil. It's possible he's talking about that. I lean that way. Not all people agree, but I, I lean that way. At the very least, I think he's using that as an illustration of the greater point, to be sure. What he's saying to Martha is, listen, Martha. Martha. Close your mouth, Martha, and open your ears and listen to me. Listen to me. Your priorities are all mixed up. Your priorities are all topsy-turvy. They're upside down. You don't have the main thing. The main thing. I mean, she wishes to to really honor her Lord and her King with this elaborate meal. And that that is a very good and noble desire. But what has happened is she's allowed this to become so burdensome that it has has interfered with the main thing, which is to listen. Listen to the Savior. Listen to the Word of God. This is the main thing. Mary, she has chosen the good portion. She's chosen the good portion. She She has made in this Scenario. She has chosen well. It's not not that providing a meal to the King of Israel and a Messiah of God is a bad thing. That's not the point. The point is that this temporal responsibility activity has elevated itself where it is now crowded out. The most important thing. The most important thing which is listening to Christ. She should have been content to serve a a simple meal, just something small, and spend her time doing that which is most important, the main thing. Listen, loving God, loving God, By listening to His Word is the source of life, not a meal. The Old Testament is very, very clear. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's not the physical sustenance of our soul of our body that lasts unto eternal life. It is the spiritual sustenance of our soul that comes through the Word of God. Martha's doing good. Mary's doing better. All right, let's let's pull this thing two thousand years forward, right? Shall we? Let's take this thing out of its historical context. 2,000 years ago, let's, let's ramp it right up now to the end of 2010. 2011s, right on the edge of the calendar here. What are some of the ways that we fall into the same trap of forgetting the main thing? Allowing those things that are good to crowd out that which is essential. Well, there's a few ideas for you. Maybe, with regard to young mothers, some of you in here may be young mothers you have you have small children at home you're so busy with the responsibilities of of raising those little ones and and that is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity and responsibility that comes of the Lord raising your children in the fear and admonition of the lord It's a good thing, but it can become so all consuming that it begins to squeeze out the life of God in your own soul. You're so focused on caring for the little ones, there's never any time for your own to read the Scriptures. So your Bible sits unused, except for Sunday mornings. Day by day, week by week, you don't read the Bible. And if you don't read the Bible, you're your ability to know God and to, and to sense His love for you gets diminished, gets squeezed out over time. So it can happen to young mothers pursuing a very noble task. You know, it can happen to us because of our work schedules. I mean, working is a good thing. God created work, made us to work. It's a good thing to provide for your family. The Bible tells us that. But when our work schedules, when we're working so hard, so long, running on the treadmill with such frantic pace that there's never any time to be alone with God and His Word, you find yourself missing the corporate meetings of the believers. When we come together and we sing and we pray and we hear the Word of God and we worship together, when, when those things begin to be squeezed out of your life because of our crazy work schedule, your priorities are out of order. You don't have the main thing, the main thing anymore. Or maybe it's your family commitments. You know, they're, they're, we all have certain family commitments, right? We have, we have in-laws and outlaws. we have to go visit, right? And it intensifies at this time of year, doesn't it? We used to live back, back in New England, we used to call it the in-law shuffle. You know Thanksgiving lunch and Thanksgiving dinner, two different homes. I had more turkey than I knew what to do with. But that can happen. Those those family responsibilities, or or maybe it's maybe it's just recreational things. You know, man, I work hard all week. I get to the weekend and I just need to I need to get away from this place. I need to I need to recreate my life. So off to the river I go. Maybe it's just your children's activities. You know, kids playing soccer. They're playing baseball they're doing a you know, dance lesson whatever it is your life is crazy busy you're running here you're running there you go and what happens is that your the life of your soul begins to recede maybe it's ministry involvements you're just so busy involved in ministry helping other people doing ministry things you know it can even happen to preachers you know you become so busy writing sermons that the very, your very life with Christ, that loving relationship with Christ can begin to get squeezed. Even doing something like preparing sermons. Maybe it's just plain old stress and fatigue. Right? Plain old stress and fatigue. You get into this cycle where I'm tired. It's been a, been a busy week. I am so tired. I'm too tired to get up on Sunday morning and come to church. So you miss. Sleep in. Then you're not tired at night. So you stay up too late. And then you sleep in. And then you're staying up too late. You know what I'm saying? The cycle begins to run and run and run. And the the stress comes in on you. And you, you don't feel like doing anything. You get home. On goes the TV. Right? 440 channels and nothing on. That's what happens to us. And our life of faith just begins to get squeezed. I mean all of these kinds of things we've experienced. I've experienced them, other than the young mother part. I never never experienced that. I've seen it. It just happened to you. Happens to you. Mary responded to Jesus. She responded to Jesus because she desired to hear His Word, not out of duty, but out of devotion. Not out of duty, but out of devotion. See, we we read our Bibles not out of duty. If I read my Bible today, then God will love me more. Wrong. If I don't read my Bible today, God will love me less. Wrong. God's love for us is in Christ when we are by faith united to Christ. And and that makes His love for us perfect because His love for His Son is perfect. There is no highs and lows. It's not performance-based. Understand this. This is the Gospel. This is the good news. But we read our Bibles. And we read our Bibles not out of duty, but out of delight, out of devotion, because we love Christ. We love Him. and And we want to hear what He has to say to us can't help but thinking of a few years ago when our youngest son joined the Marine Corps. He left right out of high school, joined the Marine Corps, and he left for, for boot camp down in San Diego. And, like most parents, I suspect, we couldn't wait until we would get a letter from him. Happens that our son is a prolific writer, he likes to write. So, we've got lots of letters, and that was really good. But this would be the scenario all summer long. And, and he had something happen. And he was actually delayed. I think it was 15 months. Or 15, yeah, 15 months. 15 weeks instead of the regular 13. 15 weeks. Letter would, would arrive. And my wife would go out every day, just about knock the mailman over. <laughs> check the mailbox. Is there a letter from our son? She'd get it. She'd open it up. And she'd read it. Then she'd call me on the telephone at the office. And I'd say, did we get a letter today? Yeah, we got a letter. Okay, read it to me. So I would hold the phone. She'd read the letter to me over the phone. Then I'd get home. I'd say, where's the letter? I'd get the letter and I would read it again. Carefully and slowly. Then after I finished reading it, sometime that evening we would would sit together out in the living room and we would talk about what we read in the letter. What do you think he meant by that? How do you think he's doing here? Let's pray. Let's pray for him right now. About... This or that. See, we love our son. We love our son. And, and to hear from him was an absolute delight. To read his letters to us was, was an absolute delight. See, that's the, way, that's the way I want to be with the Bible. That, that's what I want. When, I want my Bible to be like a, a letter from my son. And you know what I'm saying this person I love dearly. I can't wait to read it. And then I can't wait to to talk to somebody else who's read it. What do you think he meant by that? That's kind of an odd thing he says there. What do you think that means? How do do we apply this truth that we've just read together in the Bible? This This is a heart of devotion for God. Maybe there's, maybe it's right now in your life, some of you sitting here. Maybe there's certain activities or, or something going on, certain stress that's hindering your time with Christ. Something keeping you from making the main thing the main thing. Maybe it's financial pressures. This is the third year of a brutal recession times are hard so maybe it is financial pressure and it's real it's very real maybe there's maybe there's certain family dynamics going on problems in the home maybe you're just kind of busy in life doing a lot of stuff but you know at the end when you add it all up it, it really it's kind of lightweight it doesn't amount to much Yet at the moment it seems so necessary and, and so important. But when you're really honest with yourselves, when I when I'm really honest with myself, when I when I really allow the Spirit of God to search my own heart, when I read a when I read a passage like this, I have to ask myself, what is it that's keeping me from making the main thing the main thing? And once I've identified it, here's the harder question to ask. What am I going to do about it? What are you willing to do about it? We're coming up on the end of the year, right? What are you going to do to, to change the way you're living right now? So that the main thing is the main thing.